Hi, this is Melina Palmer, author of What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Melina Palmer. Melina Palmer is founder and CEO of The Brainy Business, which provides behavioral economics consulting to businesses of all sizes around the world. Her podcast, The Brainy Business, Understanding the Psychology of Why People Buy, has downloads in over 170 countries and is used as a resource for teaching applied behavioral economics for many universities and businesses. Melina obtained her bachelor's degree in business administration from the University of Washington, then worked in corporate marketing and brand strategy for over a decade before earning her master's in behavioral economics from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. She teaches applied behavioral economics through the Texas A&M Human Behavior Lab and is the author of two books as well as the behavioral economics and business column for Inc. Magazine. Melina lives outside of Seattle and is here to talk about her book, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics. Welcome, Melina. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? I am. Um, an old soul or perhaps born in the wrong decade. So I was a real big Beatles fan growing up. And so I would have to go with Paul McCartney. Paul is my favorite Beatle, I would say. He's one that I've always been a fan of. What's a way that he inspired you that you think of now? Yeah, part of what I think is really fascinating about Paul McCartney and John too, they can't read music traditionally as far as being able to read music. I was a vocalist for my whole life too. So that really resonated. But being able to become such a musical icon and learning music in the traditional way that others do and being able to collaborate with people without having that background skill is something I think is very fascinating. And just being curious and learning and being willing to jump in and try stuff, I think is something that is really powerful that I've learned from Paul McCartney. Can you think of a time in your career where you just need a little bit of that Paul energy to step up and go after something, even though you maybe didn't have the background for it, or you encourage somebody to do the same. Yeah, I think probably countless, but what comes to mind there would be starting my own podcast when I did that. I have lots of training with a microphone and being on a stage and things like that. But as far as when I started the Brainy Business Podcast, I very much Google how to podcast, then figuring it out. But being able to go in and know the things that mattered to me, like I said to you in our pre-conversation, I knew that I never wanted to be doing my own editing. That was not going to be a good use of my time. But making sure that audio quality was really high was important to me. I rebranded my whole company, came up with and launched the podcast, learned how to do a podcast and went live with the first three episodes in about four weeks from deciding it was time to do all of that and over 200 episodes now and never look back. That's fabulous. Congratulations on that because over 90% of the podcasts that launch never make it past episode 20. That's a real sign of success and growth in addition to being downloaded in 170 countries. Yeah, yeah. It's been a fascinating experience to be sure. I never thought about the global aspect of it, as silly as it seems on this side. When I set it up, I didn't even think about all the people that would find 
find it. And so it's been amazing to watch and have people from all around the world reach out and say how much they love the podcast is pretty cool. That's terrific. Now, they reach out because you're sharing with them insights into behavioral economics. Give me a quick overview of behavioral economics uh, as an introduction and why it matters to people who manage businesses day to day. Sure. Behavioral economics is essentially the psychology of why people buy things, why they do the things that they do. It's a combination of economics and psychology and neuroscience. And the reason the field really came about is that traditional economics assumes logical people making rational choices and everything that they do. Because we're all human, we know that's not really the world that we live in. What you had is models that were trying to predict what people should do and not what they actually do. So they weren't really accurate. Over time, you had economists and psychologists either entering into one another's fields or starting new projects together to see if there were these common threads in the brain, we could more accurately predict behavior and behavioral economics was born. When you were considering a master's field of study, did you look at economics and say, I don't know. And then when you came across behavioral economics, you say, yes, yes, there was a definite resonance with what that offered. Yeah, it's something like that. My undergrad, like you said, was in business administration, but a focus in marketing. I remember when I did my undergrad, there was one section of one book that had this just little bit on buying psychology that I thought was just fascinating. And that moment declared I was going to go get a master's in that. I spent the better part of 10 years calling school saying that wasn't a thing, that wasn't an option, it doesn't exist, and was pretty disappointed in it. And I was just calling it, I think, buying psychology, business psychology, something like that. It didn't have a fit. I was in this innovation program when I was running the marketing department at a financial institution, and they brought in their team from the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. And they said it was what they did was called behavioral economics. It's like, economics. Are you sure? I don't think that's right. Not to say that all marketers don't love that. I'm good at math. I I understand the econ side, but the behavior side, I was definitely more interested in, which is part of why I went to a school of psychology. But the, the human behavior lab where I teach now is in the Department of Agricultural Economics. So it's all matters. <laughs> it is a very interdisciplinary field because it draws on insights of human behavior in different areas. Mm-hmm. And what I love is that it brings a mathematical precision to the language we use in business. It shows that the language does matter. What's your perspective on how important it is for people who have a, a middling re- regard or reverence for the importance of precise language and why it's important to take it up a notch or two with how closely you pay attention to your language in order to navigate into areas that already have momentum and increase your odds of success by doing so. One of my favorite concepts, and it's the first one I introduce in the book, is called framing, which is that how you say something matters more than what it is that you are saying. An example that I think always resonates resonates well with this is to imagine you are going to the grocery store, it's spaghetti night, you need to get some ground beef, you get there, there are two stacks that are almost identical. The only difference is one is labeled as 10% fat and the other as 90% fat free, which feels better and you feel more like you want to buy. And around the world, thousands of people when I do this, overwhelmingly people say 90% fat free feels much better. And it's the one that they want to get. Logically, we know it's the same. 10% fat feels awful. You're like, I haven't been to the gym in three years. Where's that going to go? 90% fat free feels like this great thing you're doing for yourself and your family. Knowing that it's the same thing, but the brain hears it differently depending on how it's presented can make a real difference in 
the likelihood of something being accepted. So looking at your own business, maybe you have the right product, you have the right price, you have the right stuff. You're just talking about it in 10% fat terms. So if you can find a way to reframe it, it can make all the difference. You've mentioned that there are five language mistakes that you call out for managers to avoid. What are the primary ones that you want to make us aware of and how we should think about it differently so we can conduct our own experiment in reframing things or relanguaging things that we speak about on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, episode two of the podcast, actually going way back to the early days there, is the top five wording mistakes businesses make. And I'm guessing that's what you're referencing here. Another one, part of that is that framing piece, but you're are also being too, so we have being too vague, we have being too complicated and complex. In general, things are really overwhelming and we don't end up making it clear what you're asking someone to do. But more often than not, when I'm working with a client, looking at something, the call to action is missing. I can't tell what you're asking me to do there. Also, we tend to be feeling like we need to be too specific in a way that's not helpful. And this is a reframe piece that I can show. So there's a nail salon near my house where I go now and have for many years. But at first, when we moved to the area, it felt something was off. Even though a lot of people were recommending it to me, I didn't feel good about that place. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but they had this big sign outside of their space that said it was the top rated in South Sound in 2008, 2009, and 2010. For context, this was 2017. While that's still technically accurate, the world around you has changed and you go, what happened in the last six, seven years? Have you totally fallen off the wagon? Are you not good anymore? It just feels bad. Whereas to do a slight reframe, and instead say voted best in the South Sound three years in a row, slightly different feels very different (laughs) as far as you feel really good about that shift. Just looking for those sorts of little opportunities, those small changes can make a really big Even people listening to this who say we don't have a storefront, everybody has a web page. And mm-hmm. there are probably lots of examples of people putting things like this on their web page where it's too vague, there isn't a call to action, you're not making a specific introduction or moving them along the relationship building process. Let's talk about some of the other observations you've had about ways business leaders have pulled back from having the impact that they could have either internally or externally, just because they haven't been checking or getting the feedback needed in order to make those kinds of course corrections. What are one or two that you've noticed? I think like you have said that there are a lot of small business owners and entrepreneurs that listen to the show. One of the things that I have found over the years is that pricing strategy and pricing confidence is an area where I won't say everyone, but most everyone (laughs) really struggles in that space, myself included, right? Pricing and saying my own numbers to people feels bad sometimes. (laughs) It it makes you feel anxious. And that doesn't mean that anything is wrong. But when you don't have the confidence in it, it's they like to say it's like how dogs can smell fear, right? Where you might be a little bit hesitant in the way that you say things. I've had so many clients over the years, just a small business owner coming up Let's say it's Susie, who is a coach for money handling or whatever within a business of being able to help uh, other businesses to do better with their money. And she was looking and having difficulty selling some of these packages that she had to these small business owners and having you know, one that's $5,000 and one that's $7,000 and one that's $8,000. And you just feel about it. And you want to sell the $8,000 package, but you work your way up. 
if you say, I, I have this price and it's 5000 I know that feels like a lot. I have these other options that are available for you. And you downplay it before you even give the person a chance to answer. And of course, that's... Negotiating yourself <laughs> out of the best package. Then that's where people would say to me, I have this thing, but nobody ever goes for it. And so people don't want it. That's not necessarily true. You're not confident enough in it yet to be able to sell the thing that is coming across. It's it reeks of this lack of confidence for lack of better terms there. I recommend putting together bundles and not having whatever the thing is you want to sell. It should not be your most expensive package because whatever's at the top doesn't feel like the thing that most people want to jump into. We're a herding species. If she's trying to sell the $8,000 package, that can't be the most expensive one. Instead, to come in and say a combination of things. And so in this particular instance, this friend of mine who was a client combined some things together and came up with this $20,000 pack that would be amazing to sell and thought it was going to be setting an anchor to really sell these other ones that she up-leveled. And what she found, three calls in a row, everyone picked the $20,000 package. So for one, for her, was very underpriced and was able to come up with something that was a really good fit. But having the confidence to say the bigger number can make it so that these other things, where she was thinking she was going to be selling a $15,000 package, right? Instead, maybe now she has a $30,000 package to help with the $20,000 one. But coming up with those higher number anchors can really make a difference. And having confidence in your pricing is something that can go a long way for every small business owner. What I like about about that is that now this client of yours is dealing with a different problem. She's dealing with the bruises from falling off her chair when people <laughs> said yes, rather than wondering about stuttering and stumbling over giving the price that she didn't think that people would accept. Having that ease of saying the price, you, you want to be able to say the price like it's the time of day or the weather and get comfortable with saying most people, we have a ten a $20,000 package. I'm worth this much. $20,000. You have to be able to say it enough that you say it and and it has a big difference. Again, just to show the difference there, if you were to say, we have this thing and it's $8,000, there's also something that's for fifteen, dollars or I have a $20,000 package. Do you want to move forward with one of those? It's two, very different than going the other way. Two quick questions about that. Does it help to say only? And the other is that in your book, you talk about some people get caught up with how it ends in a zero five, seven, or nine. What are your perspectives on those for people selling business to business services? Yeah. Only is a real easy ad that can help it to feel more reasonably priced in general to say it's only $20,000. Yes, that can be helpful in that way. And also because like I said, we're a herding species. So saying, and most people move forward with the X package can help people to feel more comfortable. As far as ending numbers on price, looking at the zero five seven nine, what have you. Once you've decided if you want to be associated with being a bargain or a discount, or you want to be even priced, if you are in luxury goods, if you're a gift, something along those lines, those flat numbers are actually better. So as an example, people would prefer to buy a bottle of wine that's $40 than one that's $39. The And there's research into that. Also, when you ask people and said, here's a camera, you're going to be getting this for fun, for travel, for your own enjoyment. And in the other case, it's the exact same camera. They said, oh, and this is something you need for school or for work and that you have to be using. People were willing to and wanted to pay more for the camera 
when they thought it was their own fun and enjoyment than when it was something for work. Knowing which category you're in, if you want to be discounty or you want to be flat fee is number one. Once you've decided that, whether you're a five, seven or nine doesn't really make a difference once you're going to be rounding down. And that's a great perspective because it helps people understand that it does matter. You have to pick your positioning and then what follows is how you select your pricing to be consistent with the position in the mind of the buyer and the mind of the marketplace that you want to occupy. That's being able to know even, like you said, for business to business services or in small business consulting or something, it's being able to say it's $5,000 and this is what I do for you. There's some confidence in that versus also saying, and for $4,999, it actually sounds a lot bigger, doesn't it? When you have these extra digits, but it might look better when you see it on a screen or something. There's a little bit of playing around and testing with it. But if you're going to be just talking with people and to say, for only $5,000, we can accomplish this is better than $4,999 and 99 cents. <laughs> Clearly. And it just making it easier for people to reference. When I think about pricing things for a consulting model, I always think about what is the authority to spend of the buyer I'm working with mm -hmm. so that I make sure it stays within that. And just saying it's under a $50,000 package because they have a $75,000 authority to spend. For yeah, definitely. When you can know that, really valuable information. You don't always know that, but having that pricing integrity and knowing your own value, whether you're willing to negotiate or not. I previously used to do consulting for a uh, a money coach and I appreciate it. This is someone else. Her name's Mike Lan. And she talked about having a resentment number whenever you're going into a project. So if someone's asking you to speak, let's say, and you think, oh man, it would be a dream if I was going to get paid $5,000 for that just to keep using our same number. That would be amazing. It's not worth my time. If I had to go fly across the country and do this thing for $2,000, I would feel bad. I would be upset I'm losing that time. I'm going to go ahead and ask for five and then they'll come back and try to negotiate. It's very unlikely they're going to get you down all the way to 2000, right? They might say, oh, we don't have five, but can you do 3,500? You can say, yes, I can. That's amazing. You know where it fits. But if they ask you to do it for 1500, you can just say no. But you've determined that in advance so it doesn't become this internal struggle in the moment. It's called the hot, cold empathy gap when we talk about it in behavioral sciences. But when you're in that heat of the moment, it's the same. You think you're not going to buy dessert. You're going to resist. And then the tray comes to the table with all the delicious things. And you go, oh, that looks really good. And you can't resist in the moment. When we're in the moment, things feel very different. So having that plan in advance is very valuable. Can we talk more about a consulting client that you worked with and they were stuck before coming to you? What were some of the symptoms that they were experiencing that made them realize that they needed some help, some insight, assistance in order to get beyond that? Because it's something that they couldn't get beyond. Yeah, I have another example being Steve and he was running the marketing department for a reasonably sized credit union in Southern California. They had a good team of people that were already working for them. They had been researching a new rewards checking product, a checking account that pays you back a cash space. The company had put a lot of money into planning and developing this product, lots and lots of time into making sure it was something that they thought was going to resonate. But they wanted to make sure that the messaging was going to land properly. Steve had been in the business for decades, but 
sure that it was going to hit and just wanted some insights from me there. And thankfully, that was the case because the message that they wanted to use and were going to be putting on all their billboards and everything was earn 1.26% APY for up to $25,000 in balances, which really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? The litmus test is if you need to pull out a spreadsheet to understand a marketing (laughs) message, you've gone to a place that not many people will resonate with. Of course, but banking is an area that has pretty obvious jargon, but every business has jargon. Whatever it is that you do, there's stuff that you've gotten far too comfortable with in the way that you talk about things where APYs and whatnot is something in banking. In your business, it's something else and it feels very comfortable to you, but the person you're talking to has no idea what you're talking about. Even if you understand the numbers and the math and you look at rates, that doesn't really mean anything to you. And you think, again, Southern California on a billboard, this isn't turning heads on the freeway, right? When you this big, long message. So instead, I encouraged a reframe on the messaging. And we turned it into a question that said, did your checking account pay you $315 last year? It's the 1.26% times the 25,000. It's the same numbers. And it is what you could reasonably earn with this account. But it's a way that somebody can look at and very quickly say either yes or more likely no. And hey, who's talking about that? I'm interested in finding out more now based on this and know that I want to go find this particular organization to see and learn a little bit more about it. In this case, this credit union enjoyed 60% increase in their month over month checking account openings when that went live. They didn't change the budget they had planned or where they were going to be doing anything. That reframe really made a big difference in having that resonate for people. If we take a step back, they were really looking to skip a lot of steps that were necessary that you just offhandedly shared. You wanted the reaction from people to be, why I'm getting some money back, but maybe not that much. Who's talking about this? You want people to be develop the curiosity to ask more questions and to begin that conversation rather than from their perspective, plug in the numbers to just open an account. It was skipping all of those steps that really built commitment to somebody coming in and saying, I want to talk about opening an account. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I I talk about this in the book and and many other spots, but really the behavioral sciences, we work in something called nudges in nudging behavior. There's a great book called Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Richard Thaler won a Nobel Prize for his work in nudging. It's good stuff. And it's about those little shifts, but you still have free choice. When I was talking about the 90% fat free versus 10% fat, a little adjustment that can change the way somebody thinks about something. But if you want the 10% fat, you can still buy it, right? It's still there for you. Or you can get nothing. You don't have to do anything. When we look at nudges and the way that the brain makes decisions, the average person makes 35,000 decisions every single day. Let that sink in there for a minute. That is so much that's going on. Knowing that's not all done on a conscious level, your subconscious is using a lot of rules of thumb to help get you through the day with a lot of those decisions that it's making. Our brains are really good at justifying that gut reaction that the subconscious made on that conscious level. Knowing that those micro choices, those little tiny moments that are happening constantly throughout the day is what's moving us through life. Being able to navigate those in those smaller steps. I give the example in the book about a postcard. If you're mailing a postcard to someone, you would say, okay, so we sent the postcard and people bought or they didn't. And we even put a QR code, it was trackable and I knew that's where they came from. But 
Again, there were a lot of little things that happened. You needed them to notice it, to be interested enough to keep reading, to flip it over, to go find your website or scan the QR code, to then go find the right page, not get distracted by Instagram or a text message or kids running around. Go to your pricing page, learn more about it, put it in the cart, buy the thing, right? There are all these points where they can fall off the process. So we want to be making it as streamlined and easy as possible. Know what you want people to do. Again, be having all those right call to action, make it really clear and think about those tiny nudgeable moments where you can incorporate behavioral economics concepts. If the book, like you said, we when we were talking before, we can't cover the whole book in an hour, but really the book is helping people to do just that. In order to qualify as a nudge, as we think about this from people who are looking to design marketing messages or policies that make it easy to comply and stay within different guidelines or operational procedures, we want the nudges to be something that's just easy to say yes to costs very little to do, and it becomes an easy automatic routine within someone's day. Isn't that right? Or are there other criteria that need to be included in order to make it it more effective as a nudge? Yes, those things are accurate. There are also lots and lots of things that end up qualifying as nudges. Sometimes you want to incorporate a little bit of friction on an existing process, and it can help change the behavior you're looking at. Understanding what the underlying problem and behavior is the most important thing with most of my clients, because it's really easy to find the right answer to the wrong question. We want to make sure we're working on the right problem. This is an example from a research study versus something that I did with a client, but it helps really make the point. In this case, if you think about trying to get people to take the stairs, be healthier, take the stairs instead of the elevator, we would give this logical explanation all the time about why it's important, how easy it is, and why you should do it. We all know we should, but in the moment you think, I'm running a little bit late, or next time I'm going to do that. We've all been there. You get what I'm talking about. No amount of logicking is going to get the majority of people to to do that. In this particular study, what they did is they slowed down the elevator doors by 26 seconds, something excruciatingly long to where your habit gets upended. You would stand there and go, this is ridiculous. What's happening? I'm just going to start taking the stairs. They didn't tell anybody that they did that. They just slowed them down for a couple of weeks. Everybody starts naturally taking the stairs. Even when they put the doors back to normal, people didn't start taking the elevator again because the shift had taken place. So that little bit of sludge helped nudge people to take the stairs because it became easier for them. You want to look at both sides of the hat. Instead of carrot and stick, we're talking nudges and sludges. And when a business owner is listening to this, what are a couple places that you would encourage them to look in their business to see if they could apply some easy nudges or friction, slow down with sludges? Yeah, your email communication is a great spot to be able to be looking at ways that you can be incorporating some of this. And three reframes that I recommend just to use our language again that we are talking about that I suggest most often that help with that kind of nudge along. One is when you're using if, look for opportunities to say when. If is very theoretical out in the world. When is this implied it's going to happen? So instead of if you're interested, let me know. When you're ready to move forward, here's the next step, right? Slight change, 
makes a big difference. The next one is anyone versus everyone. As I said, we are a herding species. If you say, if anyone is interested, here's what you do. When I have guests on the show that have books or things, instead of saying, if anyone wants Susie's book, go here. I say, for everyone who wants to go get Susie's book, this is where you go. People like to be part of the group. So talking about what everyone else is doing just naturally feels better to us. The last one is to be using a question instead of a statement. If you want someone to respond to an email, end it on a question. It's much more likely that they will because we feel inclined to answer. Again, instead of saying, if you have questions, let me know. Or if any of these dates work for you, let me know. Or if you want to meet, send over some times. You can say, did I answer all of your questions properly? What else do you need from me? Did I miss anything? Or which of those dates work best for you? Do any of those work for you? We feel the need to say something, even if it's to say, no, none of those dates work, but I could do Tuesday. We feel like it's a little bit easier in that process. When you want people to respond and in a question, if it's someone who you're a little bit hesitant, not sure if there's someone you should be working with or not, and you ended on a statement, they're having to do an uphill battle against their brain to then give you the information back. They really want it if you ended on a statement. What I'm hearing you say is that not only there's some easy language patterns to use, but this is what your customer wants. They're not able to tell you that they want things to be easier, to have less friction, to make it easier to do business with you to make it easier to buy the package that's right for them, to know what the next step is in a call to action for an email or a a webinar or something like that. These are the things that our customers want from us. They're not articulating. However, savvy business leaders will take these additional steps because it will make it easier to do business with people. Is that kind of the bottom line of where we're headed? Yeah. And clearly you're using some language from the book is called What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You. So of course, understanding those rules of the brain so that you can work with those subconscious rules instead of trying to fight against them to make it easier for people to find, choose you, and feel good about it. It's really a win-win. Everyone at this point in our conversation wants to know is, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? Very. Melina, at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about somebody who influenced and inspired you. And you talked about Paul McCartney because when you were influenced and inspired by him, he was Paul McCartney, not Sir Paul McCartney. Perhaps. I'm not sure exactly when he got knighted, but I'm guessing (laughs) I'm always inspired by him. So yeah, it may be obvious, but I'm going to ask what's a song you loved as a teenager. If we're going to be going with Beatles, what I will say is Abbey Road is the best album of all time. And I can't narrow it down. You need the whole flow of the album. It's a mistake to think that it can be broken down and enjoyed the same way. There's a big mix. There's a mashup of songs that all go together and flow like six songs that became one song, but they're different tracks. Abbey Road is my top. It's very important to you that people understand both the power and accessibility of behavioral economics. What's the most effective way that you've found to get your message out about that each and every week? The podcast, right? So the Brainy Business Podcast is the way that I get that out in the world. What would you say is the best advice you've ever received as an adult? My husband, when I was building my business, said to don't big time people. No matter how big you get, don't big time people. I'll go with that. What does that mean to big time somebody? (laughs) Is to say if they're trying to schedule a meeting and make it feel like you're very busy and important, but you can use my scheduling software. If you need to get an appointment with me, it's hard to get on my calendar. Don't be that person. (laughs) Just be genuine and generous. Nice. What would you say is a book that you've given away the most that's not one of your own? My very favorite book is A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger. 
and I recommend it all the time. It's fantastic. Highly recommend all of his. I'm sure it's no surprise to you that Warren's been a delightful guest of ours in the past. Wonderful. I've had him on my show as well. He's very wonderful and insightful. I'm glad to hear you've had him on the show. Everyone listen to those episodes because he's great. Excellent. We'll make sure they're in the show notes. Melina, tell me, what is your definition of personal success? I know I'm being successful when... I am enjoying the work that I'm doing and people are coming back to me and saying how they were able to apply what I talked about and see results. What's a recent example of that? Having someone who actually took one of my classes at Texas A&M on goal setting that I teach mindset and goal setting and saying that they did their whole 90 days through the first kind of sprint here and were able to narrow their focus, get things done where they've gotten stuck and distracted before. And they were already planning and ready for their next 90 day sprint and how they were going to be using the insights. That was one that was very exciting. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I'm going to extend it a little bit beyond a year because the pandemic made it that this is all a really long, long, long year. Never-ending season. Or- <laughs> but I had built my business to be all about speaking and physical travel and consulting pre-pandemic. And I still love to travel and to be on site with businesses. But knowing that there's a lot that can be done virtually and finding the right balance with my own family and being able to have that separation has been really valuable. So knowing when I'm traveling, it's for the right stuff instead of just defaulting that everything needs me to be away. Excellent. It's really important for people who are thinking about behavioral economics and how it can apply to improve their business, shorten the distance between doing business with other customers, and even attracting new people into their own organization. What's the warning that a small business leader can take from bike shedding, that term coined in frustration over designing a nuclear power plant, what's the warning that they could take away that could be tripping up some of their day-to-day activities, priorities, or goals? Because our brains are built on that predictability, we love the status quo. So doing something that feels a little bit scary or outside of the norm, our brain can put a bunch of blocks in our way to make it feel like we are needing to get something else done first before we can do this new thing, which would be like, I can't launch my new website until I've looked at all 8,000 templates that exist out there. But resetting and saying, you know, if I build the content in and try something now and just get something out there, I could always change it later if I needed to, as long as you're not investing a huge amount into that. Looking at the thing that may feel like it's the most important thing could actually be very small. It's your brain trying to keep you safe from doing the thing that has a little bit more consequence to it. So asking the easy question of, can I change this easily? down the line? And what if I just move forward? That can help you get out of those bike shedding. That's terrific. It's just one example of the many valuable tips that you've shared during our conversation today, where we talked about the idea of being able to come up with, to be able to think about how psychology actually influences economics. It's about how people actually are behaving in response to day-to-day situations. It's understanding that you need more confidence in order to execute a strategy and using the language patterns that could help you get there or to help a 
prospect make the decision to work with you. It's learning how to recognize that hot, cold empathy trap. It's understanding that we do make tens of thousands of decisions a day. And in every way that we can work with the science that shows how people are likely to decide, make it easier for them to decide, and to support them in that process, it just makes it a better experience as you build relationships with people using behavioral economics. For these reasons and so many more, Melina, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Melina, before we say goodbye for now, where is it that people can find out more about you and your work online, specifically as listeners to this conversation together? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. I am, of course, on all the socials as The Brainy Biz. And you can also find the podcast and books at thebrainybusiness.com. I've also set up a nice free gift for all of your listeners. If you want to get the first chapter of what your customer wants and can't tell you for free, go to thebrainybusiness.com forward slash quest, and it will be there waiting for you. you know, we're going to link to your website, thebrainybusiness.com forward slash quest, so that people can take advantage of that kind offer that you've extended, your social media, as well as all the places to buy this book and your others. Melina Palmer, author of Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics. Thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.